Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Hey, listeners, welcome to this fall 2021 edition of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words, part of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. In this episode, we visit with Ed Southern, author of Fight Songs, a story of love and sports in a complicated South. Why do sports mean so much that so many will play and watch them in the face of a global pandemic? How have college sports shaped how Southerners construct their identities, priorities, and allegiances? Why is North Carolina passionate about college basketball when its neighbors to the South live and die by college football? Fight Songs explores the connections and contradictions between the teams we root for and the places we plant our roots between the hopes of fans and the demands of the past, present, and future. Travis Mulhauser, author of Sweet Girl, had this to say about the book. I promise that you have never read a book that so beautifully and intimately reveals the soul at the center of sports fandom that understands so fully what it means to root. Fight Songs is a book about love and history and culture. Its truths are arrived at honestly and without pretense, and it is, quite simply, one of the greatest sports books you will ever read. Before we jump into the uninterrupted interview today, I'd like to thank you for being here. We are grateful for your presence and uh, really appreciate your time joining us here on the podcast. I'm your host, Landis Wade. I'm a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories. And if you run out of things to do one day, you can check me out at uh, LandisWade.com. Find out more about uh, me and uh, my writing. For everything related to the podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. We've got show notes on each episode uh, with images and links. we also got a community blog there. Uh, if you're a writer, you can submit there. We've got a lot of great content. And speaking of great content, uh, we put out a book report every two weeks. It's free to sign up for, and uh, there's some free stuff you get when you sign up. You can check that out at the uh, podcast website. Uh, hey, we won't spam you because, frankly, that takes way too much time. Speaking of free stuff, if you like audiobooks and you go to libro.fm, L-I-B-R-O.fm, and uh, sign up with uh, their audiobook service, uh, use the promo code Charlotte Reader and get a free audiobook. Last thing I want to tell you right quick before we jump into the episode is that we have what's called a Patreon channel, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. It's a place where our authors uh, and I do a deeper dive into the craft of writing and the business of writing. And uh, you can join us there and and support the podcast when you do for uh, as little as $5 a month or $8 if you tip. Uh, we put out a lot of content on that page and uh, we've had a lot of fun doing it. I- I've certainly learned a lot about the craft and business of writing on our Patreon page. So join us uh, at Patreon or through our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com. But enough of this prologue. Let's get to today's episode. Ed, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Landis. It's a pleasure to be on here. Yeah, and congratulations on the book. Thank you. Yeah. And by the way, uh, being a graduate of Wake Forest Law School and having a son who went to Wake Forest and became a passionate Demon Deacon fan, and and he hates Carolina more than Duke, by the way, if you can believe it. But uh, huh. yeah, I really enjoyed the book, particularly your reflections on growing up a Deacon fan. So I want to start there with uh, how much black and gold actually runs through Ed Southern's veins. 
I, I guess it would depend on 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 uh, how you measure it. Um, <laughs> I, I, I was born in Winston Salem, grew up in Winston Salem. My my father was uh, not a Wake Forest graduate, uh, but a big Wake Forest fan. And um, I grew up going to uh, Wake football and basketball games as as often as we could for uh, a little while. Uh, we had season tickets uh, to to the football, so it was always a part of my life. I mean. Um, and I was introduced to the school through sports. You know, that was how I first related to it. That was how I first became attached to it. Um, and uh, I, I, I've said before that I'm, I'm sort of lucky that Wake Forest is such a good university because, you know, really I was just going there, <laughs> I, you know, because I, I wanted to get back to that. We had moved away from Winston. I want to get back to Winston. You know, I was drawn by the nostalgia for, uh, you know, the sports I've grown up watching. Thank goodness I got a good education there as well. But, um, you know, so there's there's quite a bit of black and gold. In yeah, there. I, I thought you were going to say for a second there, thank goodness it's a great uh, university because the sports have been uh, hit and miss over the years. <laughs> well, that too. But uh, <laughs> I, was too. Try, I was trying to be more positive. <laughs> Which kind of transitions, Ed, into this question because, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, sports throughout this because your book is filled with uh, information about it. Uh, but one of the things that intrigued me was, you know, what does it mean to be from the real South? Um, you quoted Ryan McGee, who was on our podcast, to say it starts in Clemson and Death Valley. <laughs> do you do you agree with that description, or do you put it somewhere else? Oh, I think if you were going, to, if you had to uh, pick one single solitary spot to say this is where the deep south starts i think the hill in death valley is is as good as any um i think that might be even better than uh the gaffney peach which is what i always <laughs> grew up here and you know when you pass the gaffney peach you're in the deep south um but i think the hill at clemson is, is an awfully good one too um i i tend to agree more with um you know, the folks that I talk to, like John Shelton Reed and Christopher Mitris, who argue that, they're, you know, the Deep South kind of winds its way through the whole region because, you know, there are parts of eastern North Carolina that are much more stereotypically Deep South than much of, say, upstate South Carolina. Um, and so it, it really, I don't think there's like a uh, you know, if if you were going to draw a line around it, it would be a very squiggly line. Mm -hmm. You know, it would not be a hard and fast and straight line. It would be, you know, it would kind of uh, go all over the place, you know, because, all right, yes, you know, most of middle Georgia is the deep south, but is Atlanta? You know, do you need to, you know, do you need to draw a circle around uh, the beltway, the belt line, excuse me? Um and and you know carve that out from the deep south, or is it part of the deep south? Who uh, you know it's it's it, when you really start thinking about it, it's surprisingly hard to say where it begins and where it ends. Yeah, it's probably not as easy as defining the sweet tea line, which I think is somewhere north of uh, <laughs> Richmond, Virginia. Yeah, well, but, you know, I had a I had a friend in college from South Georgia who, uh, when people asked where he's from, he would tell me he lived below the Nat line. Yeah, Matt G G N A T. You know, below. Yeah, and it was, I think you put it somewhere around Bacon. You know, yeah. below Bacon, Georgia. There's as many gnats in the air as there is oxygen. So, yeah. what's well, clear from your book, uh, Ed? We're going to talk about 
uh, today that uh, you, you really have a love of sports. You grew up with it. You even took it with you as a kid when you had to move uh, of all places to somewhere in the middle of nowhere in South Carolina when you've been living in Winston-Salem as a kid. Talk about that cult- culture shock for you as a child going from, you know, what was really kind of basketball country to yeah. a different part of the world there. Yeah. It was, um, you know, I write about in the book going to my first football game at Clemson. And I'd been to, you know, uh, by that point, dozens of college football games, but they'd all been Wake Forest games at Wake Forest. Um, and uh, to go to Clemson where you've got, I think at that time, Death Valley held something like 70,000 people, every last one of them in orange. Um, you know, one, th- one of the things that I heard shortly after we moved to Greenville was that uh, on game day Saturdays, Clemson, South Carolina becomes the fourth largest city in the state because of so many people descending on the town for the game. It was, you know, as I write in the book, you know, I remember watching the Tigers, you know, rub Howard truck and run down the hill, and I don't remember a thing after that. <laughs> it was it was absolute sensory overload. It was, you know, I, I, I blew a fuse. You know, I had a, a circuit somewhere in my head broke <laughs> at that point. And, and I never did, you know. Um, we went back later and, and, you know, been to other Clemson games and, and had a good time, but it really was just a very different, um, you know, uh, uh, point of emphasis. You know, the, the, where in, in Winston-Salem, we all, yeah, I mean, we enjoyed football season, but we looked forward to basketball season. Mm-hmm. Um, in Clemson, they enjoyed basketball season, but they looked forward to September. They looked forward to the, the coming of fall and football season. Yeah. And you said uh, early in this book, uh, Ed, that you set out to write a book about one thing and ended up writing a book about another, which uh, I, I think might be part of, a creative process for a lot of writers. They surprise themselves where they end up from where they started. But tell us a little bit about what you thought the book was going to be before it became what it was. Well, first of all, I thought it was just going to be an essay. I I really, I I hadn't planned on making it a book, but um, I was talking about the, the, the short essay that I planned to write with uh, Robin Miura, um, who was an editor, both at, uh, the online magazine South Writ Large and at Blair. And she said, well, the essay that you're describing would be far too long for our magazine, but would you be interested in making it into a book? And, and I really didn't think it was, at that time, I didn't think there was enough for me to write about to turn it into a book. But she, she's like, I, you know, I think there's a lot there. I think once you start digging into it, you're going to find um, so many stories to tell. And so she she convinced me and I said, all right. And I started working on it. The book that I intended to write was going to be a lot more lighthearted. Um, it was going to be a lot uh, kind of breezier. Um, the focus was going to be on all of these connections that I kept finding and whether or not those were coincidental or if there was some sort of correlation, causation going on. Um you know, I talk about the the tremendous coincidence behind um, mine and my me and my wife meeting. But once you know, I'm working on this book in 2020, and um, this sounds like I'm making it up, but it's the honest truth. Um, you know, 
obviously, you know, I've been trying to reckon with everything that had been going on um, from the pandemic to the uprisings in the summer. And I think it was around about June or July, I was um, working on the book. I was typing up something that I'd written out longhand. And literally, as I was typing, the doubt started creeping into my mind and my fingers started slowing on the keyboard until they just came to a stop. And I sat there for a second and I called up Robin and said, I can't write this book the way I was planning to, can I? And she said, no, you probably can't. You know, uh, we're in a changed world now. And so, um, you know, I, I, I didn't, you know, I, I won't say that I rewrote the book. I didn't, you know, throw out everything that I'd written and start all over, but I refocused the book and I tore up the outline that I had. And, you know, now I begin with the, the cancellation of the ACC tournament. Um, because of COVID and talk about, you know, all of the upheaval that we went through in 2020. And that really became sort of the uh, the framework around which I hung this story about sports and love in the South and, and all the connections that you find. Yeah. And, and it is uh, for our listeners, it's uh, it, it's it's a part memoir. It's uh it's, it's part what you're talking about here. And because it's part memoir, I think it's uh, I, I enjoyed the story. Uh, I'd like you just to share it, uh, how you and your wife, Jamie, met and the surprising connection you made with her with a book called The Last Coach. Yeah. Um, so the, the the long version of the story is chapter three of the book. Right, right. We won't go with the long version. We'll go right. with the short no, version. No, no, no. <laughs> I, um, the, the, just say that for your, for your listeners. In case, in case exactly. what I, 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 hope, I hope that I tell just enough to, right. to tease the out. Yeah, yeah. You know. um, the short version. And, and we talked about, you know, my moving to South Carolina. Uh, I think I was 12 when we moved there. And the culture shock of being surrounded by all these Clemson fans. And, of course, this was – I'm old enough that this was uh, before the Internet. And so, you know, the only source of news was the daily newspaper. There was no way for me to find out what was going on with Wake Forest football except to buy the college football preview magazines. And so I began a tradition that continues to this day. I spend my summers stocking up on college football preview magazines and, and then reading them. Um, well, in the summer of 2007, uh, Wake Forest was the reigning ACC champion in football something I never expected to see in my lifetime. Um, and so I was excited for the college football season for that reason. But it was also, you know, just on a personal level, one of the worst summers of my life, if not the worst summer. Um, so I was dealing with a lot and was really craving football. And so I'd read all my magazines uh, by early July. And um, was thinking, all right, I, 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 I need to get more football before the season starts. I, I need to read more. And so um, – for work, I was talking with uh, the owner of the Alabama Booksmith in Birmingham and said, can you write, you know, y'all are crazy about football down there. Can you recommend a good book that I ought to read? And he suggested The Last Coach, a biography of Bear Bryant by Alan Barrow. Terrific. Got it, read it, loved it. I mean, it is a tremendous book. I can't recommend it highly enough if you care at all about football, about Alabama, about Bear Bryant, about the South. Uh, really about America in the American century. 
um, you can learn a lot from this book. And I also felt like I got a pep talk from Coach Bryant from beyond the grave to, you know, to help get me through. So I finished it right before the season started. A few weeks later, I'm down in Atlanta for the Southern Independent Booksellers Alliance trade show. While I'm there, I, I meet a woman and we get to talking and find out she works for the Alabama Booksmith in Birmingham and that she's a big Crimson Tide football fan. And so I'm thinking, you know, thank you, Jesus, and trying to play it cool. <laughs> and, and mentioned to her, you know, that I just read a biography of Bear Bryant. And says, The Last Coach by Alan Bear, do you, do you know this book? And she looked at me funny. So I backed off of that subject. And um, But we stayed in touch. You know, we, we emailed. We talked on the phone some. Uh, a couple weeks later, you know, we're talking and talking about football. And somehow Bear Bryant comes up again. And so I bring up the last coach. And she says, do you have your copy handy? And I said, yeah. And she says, check the dedication page. <laughs> she is she is the biographer's niece and one of those to whom the book is dedicated. And so, I, I you know, as I say in the book, with a story like that, we must be meant to be. <laughs> Even though it really is a total coincidence, it just shows, you know, how deep the love of football and books runs in our household. Yeah, that's great. Uh, we're going to do a rating in just a second. Uh, before we do, I just want a couple more things about you for our listeners. Uh, uh, this is not your first book. You've had several other uh, books, The Jamestown Adventure, Voices of the American Revolution in the Carolinas. Uh, and you've also had... Uh, uh, some other works that are published in different publications. And one of the things uh, that uh, I should share that I, that I, where I met you was as you're the executive director of the North Carolina writers network. And I want you to just take this opportunity to give a plug for the network before we jump into your reading here. Glad to uh, the North Carolina writers network is a statewide nonprofit with about 1400 members. We were founded in 1985 to serve, connect, promote, educate, lead, writers uh, at all levels of skill and experience, working in all creative genres with all sorts of writing goals all across the state and beyond. You don't have to be published. You don't have to, you don't really, I mean, really you don't have to actually have written anything. You just have to have an interest in writing. And we try to offer something that will help you if, if that's something that you're trying to pursue. Yeah. And it's a very collegial group. I've enjoyed going to the conferences and being a part of the network and, uh, you know, I have met more writers uh, in this writingist state. I believe that's the nickname we go by uh, through the North Carolina Writers Network. And and listeners, we're going to actually, uh, on our Patreon channel, we're going to talk, Ed and I are going to talk about this idea of literary community. The network is part of that literary community. It's it's one part. There are other parts. We're going to kind of dive into that and, and talk about why writers, uh, what writers can get out of a literary community, what it is, how you define it, how do you create it, and those kind of things. We'll do that at patreon.com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast. But right now, we're going to have a little reading where authors give voice to the written words on, on the podcast. And uh, Ed, anything you want to say to set this up? I know it's early in the book, but uh, if, you, if you'd like to say anything before you start, uh, do that and just take it away. Well, thank you, Landis. Um, well, I, I mentioned that I opened the book with, with the cancellation of the ACC tournament and, uh, you know, how important that was. So I'm, I'm going to uh, read read a little passage about that. In the second week of March, the year of our Lord, 
our apparently angry Lord, 2020, I came back from a trip to Alabama to my hometown of Winston-Salem, North Carolina, just in time for those high holy days of my home state, the Atlantic Coast Conference Men's Basketball Tournament. The tournament began on a Tuesday with my team, my lifelong loyalty, the Wake Forest Demon Deacons, losing as a 12 seed to 13 seed Pitt. The second straight year, the Deacons season had ended in the first and least tournament matchup. That sentence has at least five things wrong with it, none of them the facts, grammar, or spelling. Still, the tournament that year was back in the Greensboro Coliseum, its ancestral home, less than a half-hour drive from Winston-Salem. And so even if I couldn't root for the team I was rooted in, I planned to go. I was writing a book about our roots and our rooting interests, about the South's favorite sports and how they're entangled with our histories and identities, about why North Carolina sets its seasons by college basketball when the Deep South sets theirs by college football. I had been in Alabama working on that book, my personal story about the stories we use to tell each other and ourselves who we are, my fun little book about sports hate and true love. This is not that book. For that book, I planned to drive over to Greensboro late Friday, go see what a ticket was going for in the parking lot, grab a barbecue sandwich from Stamey's across the street, and watch the tournament in Greensboro as of old, as God and the pilot intended, as every North Carolinian should, once at least, and as often as possible. Then, all of a sudden, I couldn't. Then, all of a sudden, the stories we'd told ourselves so long fell apart. Yeah, and Ed, when you think about um, you know everything that uh, interrupted our lives um, with COVID and all the tragedy that uh, you know we've had from from this terrible disease, uh, sports is just one part of it, but it's a big part of it, and it's it's uh, it, it was almost uh, I mean there was just a vacuum created when you know games got canceled and then it continued into the summer and then we had football and so forth and so uh it was uh almost like you'd lost a friend right yeah well and, and, and i mean in a very i mean not not in a real way but in a very um symbolic way you had because you know there are lots of forms of entertainment um besides spectator sports um all of which you know Whatever your choice is, great. I don't know of any of them, though, um, be it theater, be it movies, whatever, that brings with it the same sense of community that sports do. Um, you know, in that, you know, I, I, several times in the book I refer to, you know, I graduated from Wake Forest a long time ago now. Um several times in the book, I, I refer to it as, you know, it's a place that's always going to feel like home to me. And a big part of that is not just the campus and the classrooms, but the the teams, the the stadium, the Coliseum, you know, where I watch football and basketball. You know, I, I feel myself connected to this home of mine through those teams, even though I live only 10 minutes from campus. You know, um, virtually everyone that I talk to for this book who consider themselves uh, a sports fan. Family, um, their parents, uh, that sort of intergenerational uh, inheritance came up 
very soon in the conversation without me asking about it. You know, I, I never brought it up. They did. You know, when you start to talk to people about why they love sports, in in almost every case, uh, family came up very quickly. Um, you know, another story, one of my favorite anecdotes from the book was by uh, a wonderful writer named uh, W. Ralph Eubanks, who grew up in Mississippi and talks about going to a high, has written a memoir about um, going to a newly integrated high school. And he says for, you know, the first couple of years he was there, it didn't feel integrated. It felt like two separate student bodies who happened to be sharing a building until their high school football team made an unexpected deep run in the state playoffs. And, and I don't, I don't think they won the state championship, but I think they won a semifinal game that they were not expected to. And he said at that moment, they felt like one student body. They felt like an integrated high school. It brought everybody together. And he said, I asked him, I said, do you think anything else could have brought y'all together that way? And he said, no. And he, and he doesn't consider himself a huge sports fan. You know, he's not, uh, uh, you know, he, he likes it. He likes going to games. He uh, went to university of Mississippi. You know, he likes going to games. He follows, but he's not, you know, a diehard football fan. Um, but he said, you know, nothing else could have brought us together the way that game did. And he said they just recently had a, a reunion, and that's all everybody talked about was that playoff game that they won. Um, yeah, it's like, like like remember the Titans, uh, yeah, or who or Hoosiers or, or something like that. Right, great, I mean, great, great, great movies bring brings the town yeah. together, bring brings the, the the community together. And and you know you mentioned family and. Uh, you know, having played college football myself and my dad played the same school I did before me, we, we got to go the year before he died and see Davidson where we played, play football together. And it was just, a, a, a you know, two guys who played watching the team they played for, rooting for them. Now, Davis has never done much in football, but they did win their conference a year or so ago, which was yeah. a pretty amazing, yeah, <laughs> amazing thing. So, so we have those years, you know, and when you have those years, it's it's pretty exciting. Um, yeah. Hey, I want to ask a couple of questions. Uh, 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 you know, the, the title of the book, Fight Songs, uh, and the cover, you've got this red clay on the cover. Mm-hmm. I like that. that. That's probably, that could be from any little uh, football field or track in somewhere mm-hmm. in North Carolina, right? That, that, that red clay? Most of the Southeast, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Talk about the title, Fight Songs, um, and yeah. uh, maybe you can tell me how many fight songs you can sing. Do you have a favorite? You know? <laughs> well, uh, the the answer is zero because I can't sing a lick of anything. Right, um, right. I, I know several fight songs. Uh, of I, I can sing all three verses of the Wake Forest fight song. Right. Uh, most people don't even know there are three verses of the Wake Forest <laughs> fight song. Um, you know, I finally, my wife is very proud of me. I finally have... I think I know all the words to the Alabama fight song. I can hum uh, at least a couple dozen fight songs. Um, yeah. They, I mean, it, it's, I, I, I don't know. I think fight songs are great. Personally. <laughs> and, I mean, and, you know, the title we came up with, you know, doesn't refer actually to fight right. songs. I've had right. a couple people ask if, you know, so the book's about fight songs. Like, no, 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 no. no, no. You know, it's, it's symbolic. It's metaphor. exactly, exactly, exactly. But, but you also I, talk, you talk about a politically incorrect uh, song too. In the book, uh, you know, always wanted to be a football hero. You oh, got to be a football hero. Be a football hero. Yeah. yeah, yeah. To get along with the beautiful girls, you know. I can oh, remember yeah. hearing that growing up, right? And yeah. of course, it's it's not the right uh, 
metaphor, no. but it's what drove a lot of guys oh, sure. to go play football, try out for the team, right? You know, Absolutely. try out for the team. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, that you mentioned Crimson Tide. It, it reminded me of a little uh, vignette in the book where uh, I think your wife gave you your first Crimson Tide jersey and you were kind of measuring it for size to see whether you could put it on or not. And then you put it on and somebody said – to you in the parking lot or somewhere, go tied, and you didn't really, it didn't really register with you, right? Well, yeah, she gave it, she brought me a, uh, so my wife and I dated long distance, first year and a half we were together, and she, she was working in New York, and um, I, I was down here in North Carolina, so one uh, weekend we met in Washington, D.C., and uh, she had brought me an, an Alabama football t-shirt, and we were going to watch the Alabama-Clemson game go. This is 2008. This was the very first Chick-fil-A kickoff. Um, it was the start of Nick Saban's second season. And I, I really had, like, kind of a moral quandary because, you know, I, you know, I talk about the sensory overload of Clemson, but, you know, all my friends from Greenville, um, you know, many of whom I'm still friends with, in fact, we were just texting each other this afternoon, were all Clemson grads and huge Clemson fans. And so, you know, I have a soft spot in my heart for the Tigers because of that. But I love this woman, and she loved her Tide. <laughs> and so I finally said, okay, I'll I'll wear the T-shirt. It'll be fine. And so we're, you know, we watch the game. We're walking down the street in Washington, D.C., and somebody hollers out, roll Tide. And I I just kept right on walking because <laughs> I had I like it just it didn't even occur to me that they were yelling at me. No one ever yells go deeks on a crowded city street. There just aren't enough of us. Um, so it's just not like, you know, I, ha I had no practice with or expectation of somebody hollering at me over the shirt I was wearing. And yeah. then finally, you know, the next time, uh, the second time, I think I just said, uh, thanks. And then finally, <laughs> Uh, my then girlfriend, now wife, got me to got me to say roll tide in return, and and since then I've done it several times. So I, I guess I'm part of the club now. Yeah, a couple of things uh, I want to touch on before we get to a few writing life questions. Um, a couple of the questions you raised that I mentioned in the, at the beginning of the show. You know, why do sports mean so much that so many will play and watch them in the face of a global pandemic? That's an interesting question. I mean, even today, as the Delta variants running you know, through stadiums and you see 70,000 people packed in, uh, people are sometimes putting their health at risk, you know, to go into these venues. So uh, touch on that a moment, uh, even in the face of a global pandemic, people are still determined, you know, to be there. Yeah. That was one of the many questions that I, that I asked of myself in the writing of the book that for which there was no one answer, you know, there's a multitude of answers. I think yeah. for some people, you know, why do we continue on with sports in the face of a pandemic? I think for some people, it's, you know, the pure love of the game, whether as spectators or as athletes. I think for some people, it is that sense of community that sports bring with them. And I think a lot of people, especially last year and especially this fall, people were really desperate for that. You know, they, they needed that feeling of togetherness that sports can bring you. Um, Sadly, for a lot of people, especially a lot of the decision makers, I think it was money. You know, they were bound and determined to go ahead with college football because they wanted the money that comes with it. They they had broadcast contracts to uphold. Um, they and and they wanted that revenue. Um, 
you know, for other people, uh, you know, mainly the athletes, and you know, we're talking about lifelong dreams, and they were willing to take the risks in order to pursue those. Um, you know, it. I, th- I I know I did, and I, I think millions more really expected that it would be all right to go to games this year, this fall. You know, really thought, okay, by the time the the twenty twenty one football season starts up. It'll be fine. We'll all be vaccinated. You know, it'll be good. Um, it's, I, I, you know, I can't begin to describe the, the sinking feeling that I have um, with it, you know, with that not being the case. Um, you know, we, we went to the Wake Forest game last Friday. We all wore masks uh, inside. You know, they're not required. I mean, it isn't out, you know, you are outdoors, but still with everybody as close together as they were, people we didn't know, uh, we, we chose to wear masks, um, you know, and we're going to have to think hard about future yeah. games to go to. It's it's a shame. I think, you know, one, one of the other reasons why I think people were bound and determined to go ahead with sports is um, I, I think a lot of people in this country simply don't want to face up to the idea that there's anything wrong. Yeah. You know, that, you know, they, they, uh, they like living the, in, in the illusion that everything's fine. Everything's all right. And, uh, yeah, which I think is especially sad. Yeah. And, and before we leave this and get to a couple of writing life questions, um, you also talked in the book about, uh, politics to some extent and how, uh, you know, North Carolina, over time has been somewhat more of a progressive state than some of the other deep South states. But yet when the college coaches stand up and do things, I think you used an example of, uh, you know, when, when Nick Saban came out and said, you know, black lives matter, Mm -hmm. uh, rather than following, you know, religiously like they normally do, no matter what play calls, you know, a lot pushed back, you know, they mocked him. They said, you know, if you're putting black lives before, all lives, you can, you can kiss my ass was one person's response. Yeah. And so I just wonder, uh, and of course you mentioned Dean Smith being, you know, uh, the, the, the progressive, some would say really liberal mm-hmm. uh, coach uh, in North Carolina. How did politics weave itself into your uh, thought process here when you're thinking about sports? I, I mean, sort of uh, almost instinctively. I actually, I, I tried very hard to avoid um anything that I felt was explicitly political as in, as in partisan, as in, you know, um, having to do with elections or anything like that. Um, it's I, I, to me, at least it's very sad that issues like, um, <laughs> you know, mitigation of a global pandemic has become a political issue that that just shouldn't be. That's, you know, um, the notion, you know, we're simply saying black lives matter. The notion that that has become a political issue is heartbreaking. Um, so, you know, I, I had, you know, obviously you couldn't write this book in 2020 and not touch on those subjects. Tried to avoid, you know, electioneering. But I really, you know, I, I found it interesting because you know, everyone, you know, for years you've heard, you know, people, you know, worship the coaches in the Deep South. And, you know, if, if, you know, Nick Saban said to do it. Everybody would do it. Well, Nick Saban said to do it. Nick Saban released a film, several PSAs, urging people, you know, uh, wear masks, social distance, P- 
people didn't do it. You know, Ed Ordron, uh, the coach at LSU, um, did, did PSAs saying, you know, wear your mask, keep your distance. People didn't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, which really, you know, puts the lie to the notion of, you know, college football as a religion in the deep South and, and buttresses what uh, the writer Rick Bragg once said that only religion is religion in the deep South. So. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Well, a couple of writing life questions. Um, given the fact that you started one place, ended up in another a little bit of overlap. Uh, do you think writers are in control of their imaginations when it comes to writing? Phew. Oh boy. I'm going to, uh, uh, <laughs> I'm all right. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, you're, 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 you're a recovering lawyer. So I think you'll, right. appreciate, you'll appreciate the, the weasel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, because I think, um, yes, a writer is in some degree of control, but you don't want to keep too much control on your imagination. If that makes sense. You know, when you're actually doing the writing, you want to, you know, follow every wild hair of an idea that occurs to you. Um, you know, if, if, you know, it goes off on a tangent, follow it down that tangent, see where it goes. You never know. Um, but at the same time, I think, you know, uh, uh, if you, it helps for a writer to have the discipline to recognize, okay, now I'm being self-indulgent, you know, and, and be able to, to, to understand that difference. Um, now, I also believe that writers should be their first editors and that writers are often their best editors. And so when you, you know, you met, I mentioned earlier, you know, I was typing something that I had written longhand. That's part of why I try to do that. You know, I try to write longhand first and then go back and type it because that's sort of my first edit. Um, you know, that allows me to say, you know, what on earth was I thinking? <laughs> you know, when I wrote this down, my God, what a waste of ink that was. Um, so I think, you know, so the answer is sort of, uh, yeah, you're in control, but but you don't want to keep too much control and you don't want to be too conscious of the control that you're exerting. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, well, I, w- I would ask you, you know, uh, uh, an advice question. I just read your letter. I got in the mail last night the uh, the, the big uh, Writers Network news uh, with all the tips, and you got a letter there. And one of the things you say is every writing rule is really more of a guideline than a rule, really. Yeah, just about everyone. <laughs> so we could we could sit there and talk about all the advice, but then we could say, yeah, but that's not really a rule. It's a guideline, right? I, I mean, really, it's advice. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's not uh, – I, I have a, a reflexive distrust of any sort of absolutes that writers or writing teachers put down other than you have to write. You have to do the work. Um, that's the only – hard and fast rule that I know of the, the, the next closest to a hard and fast rule is that you have to read. Mm, yeah. yeah. You can write without reading, but it won't be any good. Exactly. I'd right, ask this question to authors who've written more than one book uh, and have been at it for a while, as you have, if you could tell your younger writing self, something of value uh, based on what you've learned that might be helpful to that younger writer. Uh, does something come to mind? Oh man, just you 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 can have to schedule me for a whole nother episode. <laughs> you got to boil it down. This is the way would, Oh my god, yeah, I know. I I would have a long talking to with my <laughs> younger self. Um, I would I would 
and this is something I say to, to young folks who are interested in writing is um, don't, I, I should not have wanted so much to be a writer. I should have wanted more to write. And that's not to say that I didn't put a lot of words down on the page, but I should have uh, thought more seriously and really focused on, you know, what stories do you really want to tell and, and work more on telling those. Yeah, that's great advice. Uh, listeners, this is uh, Ed Southern, Executive Director, North Carolina Writers Network, and the author of Fight Songs, A Story of Love and Sports in a Complicated South. You can pick it up now and uh, read it uh, in the middle of a uh, football season. Of course, by the time this comes out, they'll probably be doing practices for basketball because this is coming out in October. Uh, it'll kind of have that overlap. But uh, we're going to jump over to Patreon now and talk about literary community. Ed, I want to thank you uh, for coming on and spending some time with us on Charlotte Reader's Podcast. Thank you, Landis. Great being on here. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.